In this episode, I'm joined by Christina E. Fontenelle, psychotherapist specializing in art movement therapy, CEO and founder of Fontenelle Art Mental Health. Fontenelle Art is a mental health and creative wellness company that aims to serve communities by providing art and movement-based approaches, as well as professional development and mental health awareness, as well as creating spaces for healing and cohesion. They believe that mental health wellness should be freeing, expressive and accessible to everyone regardless of gender, spiritual, racial, ethnic and sexual identity. For more information surrounding Christina and her work, visit fontanelleart.com. So you use art movement therapy to spread awareness for various mental health issues. So what is it about art and movement therapy that you're that you yourself are so interested in and why is it so effective? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, the company that I birthed, Fontanelli Art, came out of a place of oppression of my own childhood, of not being allowed to dance in my home, to listen to music out loud or to paint. Um, I just grew up in a very strict household and it was bothersome for my parents. And so I'd have to sneak you know, anything that I can draw that no one could know that I'm, I'm making something or creating something. And now that I'm an adult, I wouldn't want anyone else to experience that. Um, I realized that as a child, I was trying to find non-rebel ways to express and process the things that I was going through growing up in Chicago. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes words aren't always there, but the creativity, the art, everything is around us, but it's a matter of utilizing it and honing in and seeing it as a resource. Why do you believe that mental health wellness should be freeing and expressive and accessible to everyone? I think that prior to the pandemic, there's a lot of data showing that we were struggling with mental health. It was a stigma. It was not normalized. It was shameful. If you went to a therapist, you were seen as crazy. Um, and a lot of people just don't respond well to verbal therapy. And I am grateful. One of the few things I'm grateful for from the pandemic is that it escalated and brought forth the issue of mental health. Everyone struggles with something, whether it's depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, an addiction of some sort, loneliness. Everyone struggles with something. But it's a matter of what tools can you use to begin to sit with that and to process that. There's a lot of things that I believe that we may be experiencing in the black and brown community that is intergenerational, things that have been passed down by our bloodline. And the art and music and movement is already in a lot of cultures. And so why not use something that's already there in our everyday and gatherings and community and use that as a tool to begin to talk about, well, how do you feel in your body? How do you feel when you have racing thoughts? What does it feel like to begin to connect with parts of yourself that may have been suppressed for so many years, right? But using unique tools to be able to tap into that. Initially, when you came up with Fontenelle Art, you kind of had like a team of people that kind of did it with you. So I was kind of interested in your connection with Samantha Schwartz and, and Sarah Stern as like, marketing outreach director and community engagement coordinator? Yeah. Um, so I actually started this company alone. Um, 
from November 2019 up until March 2020. That's when Samantha Schwartz joined and she was our marketing outreach coordinator. And then a few months in the pandemic, she became our vice president. Um, and, you know, she's just an amazing, amazing person who has so many connections and just has the heart of service. You know, she wants to be a bridge to be able to bring, you know, right connections and the kids to the resources and adults to the connection. Um, and I'm also grateful that soon after that, we had um, a person who helped with our marketing, Sarah Brooks. And then we had um, Sarah Stern, who is now our community engagement coordinator. And so I am very, very grateful that I have people who have volunteered their time to believe in a dream, to believe in like, yes, we can continue to push this. And we have an app and we have online services. Um, and last night was actually a night in history for Fontanelli Art because we had officially onboarded our first 10 interns to the company. And if you would have told me a year ago that I was one going to even have staff members and then two have interns, I would not have believed it. And I know, and I'm grateful, you know, my faith is a large role in what I do. And we are deaf accelerated as a startup. We have accomplished milestones that usually takes years for people to hit. And so I know that the more that we talk about it and the more that we offer it without shame and without guilt, you know, just healing and talking and conversation and having those hard conversations about racism and immigration um, and political concerns. That's what attracts people is that we're honest, we're transparent and we're vulnerable with everyone. Would you say that there's been having started as a solo initially at the beginning? Would you say that kind of things kind of happened sooner than you thought they would happen because of the, the, working with a team of people and having that kind of like collaborative space. Oh yes, absolutely. I, I never thought I would expand. I always thought it would just be me providing services. And my dream was I want to travel the world and offer art and movement workshops to different communities and just, you know, be a resource in different, you know, international waters too. And so when Sam originally joined, I actually said, no, I was like, no, you know, it's okay. I think at this time, you know, I have a business consultant. She's helping me manage. And then God spoke to both of us and I had a change of heart. And I was like, you know, I'm going to give it a try. It came down to trust. I was afraid to trust someone to have the same amount of passion and the same heart to want to bring these services. And so when she came on board and I saw how excellent she did, it made me more open and receptive to bring on, you know, our marketing person and then our community engagement. And then our final staff member is um, Dulce Torres, who is our data and workflow analyst and does all the IT and operations behind the scenes. Um, and so because of that, I was like, OK, let's let's try to get interns to get more. We just have so much of a demand that I couldn't keep up. Um, so that's why we brought interns, because I also want them to have that experience on a resume when they graduate, whether it's high school or college or their master's, to help them have that foot in advance. Because with the pandemic, the applications for internships, the competition was just way, way, way too increased. And I saw way too many people of color not getting the chance that they want. Um, and so our next step, and to continue to be open and expand, is I'm going to bring on 10 teachers yoga teachers, dance teachers, art teachers, 
um, Zumba teachers, meditation teachers, because so many schools and organizations want our curriculum. And I never want to say no. I just say not yet. Mm-hmm. Let us pivot. Let us get what we need. Let us get the bandwidth so we can show up. And what kind of events and, and projects have you already held which target kind of like ethnic minority groups or ethnic minority communities? Yeah. Um, so all of the workshops that we do are from two stance. One is always a trauma informed. Um, so that means that we take into consideration the background, anything that they may be struggling with in mental health. We take consideration the age, family dynamics, school dynamics to make sure that we're speaking from a mindfulness approach. And then we also do everything from a social advocacy approach as well. So that means that if there is something, you know, for example, Black Lives Matter, you know, all the protests, we're going to acknowledge that. We're going to talk to that because there's not a lot of spaces where people feel comfortable to voice that. And so a lot of the work we do has to do with, you know, otherism, being discriminated against, not feeling empowered. There's a reason why they ask us to come. And yes, it's mental health, but there's always a step deeper. And it's because there's a void that's not being met. Mm -hmm. And so that not being seen, students not being seen, staff members not being seen, burnout, um, you know, maybe just not being motivated anymore. I think the impact of that is mental health. No, I agree with you. And I was going to ask, would you say that, would you say that yourself, like you've experienced discrimination or stuff, the kind of the day-to-day thing a black person has to go through kind of situation, would you say it's like you're using your experience to, to like reflect what you're doing now and, and, and support others who have also experienced the same thing? I would say absolutely. In the same way that my company has accelerated and where we are as a startup, I feel like although I'm 30, I've been through a lot and I've been exposed to a lot, especially as a therapist. Um, you know, just being attacked, being cornered in my office, being bit on, being called the N-word, people touching my hair, people touching my body, um, people staring at me publicly at, you know, at work. I, this is the first time I publicly talk about it, but the biggest discrimination I faced was at the school, the art Institute of Chicago. Um, that is where I got my art therapy degree. And I graduated in 2016, went to Miami, came back, and I was offered a position as their art therapist in their mental health services. And so that was it. That was the dream for me to be able to go back to the school that gave me my education and pour into other artists and performers and dancers. And then I didn't last three months because we had some issues with communication expectations. Um, You know, I was showboated around by the director like, oh, yeah, she speaks Spanish and she speaks sign language. And, you know, I think she's really going to connect with our students. And she's also a dance movement therapist. So we're going to be really, you know, dynamic and how we approach the new numbers and data. Just all of that literally within my first month, my director took me from department to department, departments that weren't related to us and just emphasized how unique I was. And then when I was ready to begin practicing dance movement therapy, I needed a supervisor, a clinical supervisor. And then that became a problem. Oh, no, we, we, we can't do that. That's too much of a, a liability. I was like, hmm. 
And so I was trying to be creative. And so a lot of people when they hear dance with therapy, they think it's a dance class, but sometimes it can just be movement and me taking you on a journey on, you know, let's lift our arms and take a breath. Let's notice how it feels to open our chest or let's look down on our feet and wiggle our toes. How does it feel to be grounded? And so I took them through an experience, my whole team, to kind of give them some insight, like an in-service. Like, this is the type of stuff I would do with the students. We can do it sitting down. We can do it standing up. Um, and he just rejected that. And so that was harsh because I needed my hours to become licensed. But the biggest thing was um, I had been sent down to Springfield to be uh, to receive a certificate for sexual assault. Um, to be able to be the uh, mandated reporter for the students. And I, I remember 8 a.m., Springfield, Illinois, the first presentation was talking about rape and sexual assault started because of slavery and started because the slaves, this is what they said, mm. weren't following what they should have been doing. And that created disruption. And I literally look around the room like, am I getting punked? This can't be real. <laughs> she did not just say this. And so I'm, I look, go ahead. I was going to say, because I, I, this is like an ongoing conversation with me and other people, but occasionally you get people saying that kind of stuff. And from a yeah. black perspective, you, you, you automatically know it's incorrect. But a lot of the time, right. you know, not to divide anyone here but all the time it's white people who say this mm -hmm. and i personally feel it's a mix between racism and like a generational gap yes because yes. you know i feel like in the in the past people were kind of like i you know even speaking from my my, my family's perspective or whatever there's, there's mm -hmm. certain terms and certain phrases that they're used to using back in the day which now are not yeah. acceptable yeah um, yep Sometimes it's quite hard to hear that from from people, and it's kind of like a, you, 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 it's, a it's quite surprising because you wouldn't have expected people still think and and believe th these kind of like theories or you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and I agree with you. You know, I think that it's it's like we're we're still hearing this, and we're in twenty twenty one, right? And so it's shocking, but yet it's not shocking. It's a mixture of emotions. And then when you're in a space where you may be, you know, if there's 25 people in the room and you're one of three who identifies as a person of color, now it feels a little threatening, right? And so whenever I try to come from a social advocacy approach, it's always from a way of teaching. Like, let's explore that. Let's have a conversation about it. And so I tried to do that. That really wasn't helpful. There was a number of other group activities that we did that was very othering and exposing and triggering. So we fast forward. She tries to kick me out, you know, on the final day. And I stand my ground and I said, no, I, I want to receive my 40 hour training. I refuse to leave. Um, I go back to the school, the Art Institute. I get an email a week later um, from the director of the um, sexual assault, you know, training thing. And she CC'd my director and said, I expect consequences to take place because of her behavior in our training. And I was like, whoa, first of all, how did she get my director's information? Second of all, you know, she took what was on my survey and 
threw it back in my face when I just wanted to get feedback. And ultimately, the last thing that happened in that job was they pulled me into the director's office with HR and they blankly asked me, you know, my name, what's my title, do I understand my role? And they asked if I was an undercover social justice political activist looking to expose the mental health um, department at the Art Institute. And, and in the moment, how did that, or now like reflecting on that situation, yeah. how does that make you feel? I would say in the moment, I was very confused. I literally had to have him repeat it a couple of times because I had never heard such terminology all in one sentence. That was the first thing. And the second thing I remember, I went into my coworker's office after they, they asked me to leave. They had me return my badge. Um, ultimately, I'm banned. I have a restraining order. Um, the director, I'm not allowed to go six feet from my own school. And I remember laying on her floor and I began to cry. And she asked me the same question. She's like, how do you feel in your body? And I said, I want, I just want to take my skin off. In a sense of, I'm so tired of having to advocate or explain or, you know, stand up for myself every second because of my hair or my skin color. Now that I look back at it, I've read some articles and I realized that there was some tokenism taking place, you know, where companies hire people because of your skin color to be able to use it in their data for numbers. Um, that I was being showboated um, to different departments, you know, kind of like bragging rights. And ultimately I was objectified. I looked great on paper, but my skin color wasn't what they were looking for because I couldn't assimilate. And I know that that's one of my call, my call to action is to disrupt everywhere I go. And it's not to tear things apart, to blame people, to say, this is wrong, this is wrong. But I gently, the analogy I've been using this week is like Jumanji, the original one with Robin Williams, mm. that low thumping of the game before the kids find it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. I want to go into spaces. I don't want to be loud. I don't want to be the animals and the tiger and the elephant. I just want to give you a low enough thump to give you curiosity. If I can get someone curious about their own viewpoint or an idea, then that allows their defense mechanism to be down. And that's where change can happen. I have to lead people on a journey, but it has to be in a gentle and still direct way. So that's what I learned from that experience. Because I, I think, I think the, the most, not the most common, but I would say the most common thing most people are afraid of is change because change is a scary process because you because you never know which way it's going to go especially when i do agree with you that when you were saying how companies hire people of color so it looks good on paper and stuff you know that is a thing i, I believe in that and i, I just I'm, I'm hoping that we're able to move forward as a society and these kind of like stigmas and these you know these the experience kind of don't happen or like don't happen at all um i think it's going to take a very long time because for centuries we've had to experience these kind of issues and as you said you know it's 2021 and we're dealing with this still now i think that's 
it's crazy to think. So I'm just thinking, what what would what would the future be like? Be like, you know? Yeah, and it, it is very interesting. And I've learned, you know, obviously the services we offer, the workshops to work with teachers and staff to to you know tackle some of these things. But I think ultimately it starts with our everyday choice and our everyday interaction. You know, it can be something as simple as where I work at my full-time job, I work at a daycare and I usually have like neon colored braids, you know, every other month. And I was going in to do an observation of a child and a teacher. We were having, you know, discussion and then she reached out to grab my hair. Without consent? (laughs) Without consent. I, I, (laughs) yeah, I I don't agree with that. (laughs) But and I don't either, but I, you know, I remember the first time it happened to me, I was in shock and I just stood there and I was like, am I being pet by a stranger? And then the second time, you know, they would grab it and I'd be like, you know, I'm not really comfortable with you doing that. Now I finally feel equipped where I gently just put my hand and I just move their hand away from my hair and I give them a very quick you cannot do this type of speech. My hair is an extension of me and who I am. And it makes me uncomfortable to be touched. Mm. And then it's the response. Oh, I didn't know. It just looks so cool. It looks so interesting. I just wanted to see what it felt like. And again, just standing firm and saying, I know that your curiosity is what caused it. However, I'm doing this nicely. If you do this to someone else who is a person of color, you probably will not have the same response so i urge you to be more mindful of your action and interaction she was just like taken back (laughs) because i think that i think that's a good way to approach that kind of situation instead of lashing out and i don't know causing a scene you kind of educate that person so they know in the future not to do that to other people because as you said other people of color won't react the same way and it's just not acceptable At all. It's not at, at all. At all. Yeah. Kind of going back to your, your work, I was wondering if you could run us through what inclusivity, um, accessibility and creativity and community is in relation to your mission that you'd like to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say one of the biggest things, so you just mentioned our, our mission statement and our four pillars um, of the impact that we want to make. And so right now we do offer art therapy, dance therapy, yoga, Zumba, meditation. We, we offer a variety of things, but we are honing in on our services of our curriculum. And so I have published a meditation journal called Aligning Your Inner Self. And I've created that into an experience. It was a workshop. And then now it's become a curriculum where I offer it to students, middle school, high school, um, university level. And it's called Aligning Your Inner Student Strength. We started this in the pandemic because students being at home, they were having a very hard time, you know, transitioning, but also the retention rate. We had too many students of color dropping out, dropping out of high school and dropping out of college. And so I wanted to go in and and intervene. So one of the schools that we worked with was um, St. Louis and three of their students had got shot in the beginning of the pandemic because they were outside, you know, they weren't inside, they were in harm's way. And so the curriculum is a five-week experience, 60 minutes each. And 
we talked about topics that are relevant to that community. I don't come in and say, okay, we're going to talk about this and this and this. No, what does your community need? So we talked about grief. We talked about identity. We talked about creating goals. We talked about having self-control when it comes to anger. And I used the art and the movement to be able to facilitate that with the students. And then at the end, the last 20 minutes of every workshop, they get a movement experience. So they'll have a fitness class of some sort. And so that gives the holistic approach for students who may not have access to that outside of our program. But then I started seeing that the students were in environments where they may have been unseen, misheard, misrepresented. And there are staff and teachers that were undoing some of the work that we were trying to change. And so I birthed the second curriculum, aligning your staff's inner gifts and potential. If I really want to make an impact in a school or an organization, I have to look at the system as a whole. I can't send them back to their classes and then their teachers or staff members are, you know, breaking them down or undoing it, whether it's intentional or whether it's just the teachers are burned out. They're going through a pandemic, too. And so now I offer that for staff members, too. And we talk about secondhand trauma. We talk about how to deal with students who, you know, are shut down instead of yelling at them and being aggressive. Let's create space. Um, and so those two things have just really, you know, making sure that we can access different communities, make sure that we're including everyone's voice and we're using the arts to be able to do that. And speaking about events, um, you have an event coming up called Dance Therapy Advocates Summit. I'm just wondering if you could possibly elaborate on what that session includes and what would what would someone benefit from attending this session? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am so honored to be a part of this summer. Uh, it is hosted by the most well-known dance within therapist in Chicago, Erica Hornthal. Um, and we are going to be offering this to other dance therapists, but it's open to the public to be able to gain insight on what it is, the work that we're doing and how we're using this work to dismantle, um, you know, COVID and the impacts and mental health, you know, racism, just anything. And so we have a wide variety of panelists and they will be using movement in their speaking engagements, just like I will. And so tomorrow I'm going to be using my meditation journal, um, aligning inner self to talk about, you know, self-care, to talk about morning and night routines, to talk about, you know, recognizing the symptoms of, of our emotions. I, I really believe that it's like when we get a cold. It's a very slow process. We get an itchy throat, we get a runny nose, we get a body ache, maybe we get sluggish or a fever. And so when it comes to certain mental health impacts, there are symptoms there, but we're so on the go. We don't create enough space. I got to get that project done. I got to get that email done, or I have to go here. I have to go there. And so my workshop is going to equip them with tools on how to slow down and become more mindful. And we're going to be journaling to do some reflection with the self and movement to help them get back attuned to, you know, their mind, body, and their spirit. So it's going to be an, an amazing 90 minute experience. Sounds like a lot. It sounds like you've been, so you've been planning this for, for have you, had you done a summit before? Well, this is going to be your first like dance therapy summit for, where you're inviting the public in and stuff. 
Yeah. Um, I've, I've done large trainings and, and different conferences. It's usually I'm the only expressive therapist coming in and offering that. This is my first time teaming up with people in my field. Um, and so I feel very honored to be recognized as a dance therapist that is making a difference and making a change where I never sought that before. You know, I, I don't look for awards or, or honors or, you know, a seat at the table. I'm so used to being a trailblazer that this is very different where it's like, oh, I just have to show up. I don't have to convince everyone that dance movement therapy works because majority of the people who are coming are open and interested. And so this is going to be a, a, another historical moment for Fontanelli Art to be a part of something that is changing in our field. I know you're uh, you're currently a Christian and you've been a Christian for many years now. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about how how has your how has your faith in God helped to support your spiritual well being, mental health, and desire to support others? Yeah, um, I think that for the longest, the the way that I was raised, and so a little bit about my background, I was born into a, a Southern Baptist Christian church. And literally I started going when I was three months old. And so God, I just grew up having God in my life. And then at seven, I made the choice to include him. Um, but when it came to mental health, a lot of the things that I learned at church was that it was evil and that it was satanic and that, you know, if you struggled with depression, you know, you had to pray it out of you. Um, and I just, I couldn't believe that God wasn't listening to my cry when I was feeling sad or stressed or overwhelmed. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago at a church I go to now called New Life Covenant Southeast um, under the leadership of Pastor Hannah and Pastor Glenn, where they started having sermons that talked about, no, like, yes, we're going to struggle with mental health. We're going to give you tools to, to talk about it and the faith aspect. And then they were like, get a therapist. Don't expect to come up here to get prayed over. And then it's gone. They were the first people I've ever heard to be able to speak on that it's a process and that it's not just an evil spirit taking over my body. And so that's where a lot of healing began to be able to, to sit with that. Um, and then there's another woman, Dr. Anita Phillips, who is a psychotherapist and a pastor. And the way she just takes Bible verses and breaks it down um, scientifically, it's, it's just so many beautiful people out there making that connection with mental health, the brain, neurology, and the faith, and how all of it is like a, a basket of tools to utilize versus like, nope, you just pray and it goes away. Or nope, you just go to therapy and that goes away. But it's an everyday choice. In 2010, Christina faced a near-death experience in a tragic bike accident. She was resuscitated twice and had an out-of-body experience that changed her life. Christina's outlook on life changed drastically. This traumatic experience birthed a deeper appreciation for life, self-awareness and purpose. So, Christina, how would you best describe this situation and how it drastically changed your life? And do you feel this event in your life enabled you to proceed with creating Fontanelle Art? Yeah, um, 
I'm so I was riding my bike and I got hit and that's not the whole the whole thing that happened flew through her windshield fell on the curb um but what had happened a week prior to was I was taking a sociology class and like I said I, I had always grew up in a church and had very rigid legalistic ideas of God and when I just started taking sociology and philosophy classes, I was like, wow, like there's so many other religions out there. How do I know that this is like the right one for me? And so I began to question my faith. And I remember praying to God and I just said, God, if you're real, I want you to prove yourself to me. I want you to give me an experience where no one can take it away from me. And I will know that it was you that showed up. And a week later, I was riding my bike on campus, going to a tutoring session. The next thing I know, I look up and a car is coming in my direction. Um, I walked out of the hospital two days later. And something I would never forget is what the doctor said. I came into the room. I looked, I looked very, very beat up, very bruised. They thought they were going to amputate my legs um, because of how bad they looked. And the doctor said, you know, Christina, people fall down the stairs all the time. And I'm looking at him like, what does this have to do with me? Like, tell me what's going to happen to me. And he's like, people sprained an ankle. You know, they hurt their arm. You just got hit by a whole car and flew through a windshield. You did not break a single bone. And they said, scientifically, we cannot explain what just happened to you. And I just remember my family just going hysterical um, because we just didn't understand. Like, what do you mean? Nothing. I had lost seven of my teeth. My mouth broke my fall on the curb of the street. And I actually had woke up the first time choking on a tooth, which put me into shock. Um, and then I got 12 staples. From that accident, I, I just switched my perspective of life. I felt like I had a second chance to be more appreciative, to, you know, look up and look at the clouds and the birds and to be more mindful. I still had a lot of work to do. I wasn't a therapist at all yet. I was just an artist. Um, and it wasn't until I had an internship at a traumatic brain injury clinic here in Chicago. And <laughs> the director in my interview, I don't even know how, how my accident came out. I think she asked me like why I was so interested or passionate with working with traumatic brain injury. Um, and so I shared it. And so she brings out a skull and it's, you know, just a skeleton of the head. And she's like, do you understand that if you would have felt, if you would have felt even half an inch in any other direction, you would have been instantly paralyzed or dead. But because your mouth took the impact of the weight, you're here. And so like that, like blew my mind. Cause I was like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. Cause I was unconscious. And so when I started leading groups, my clinical director said, I think that you should share your story. This would be a great way to connect with them. Um, you know, with accidents, cause they all had an accident of some sort. And so I shared it and they began, the clients began asking me, so, you know, how long was physical therapy? How long was speech therapy? Did you have to learn how to walk again and talk again? Um, and I'm looking at them like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, like we all went through something like that. Some of them lost their speech completely. Some of them are in wheelchairs. Some of them are disabled. And I was like, oh my goodness. 
I had another level of deeper gratitude. Like they are right. I, I could have been so injured that I needed to relearn just the basics. And so every year I am still learning. It happened in March. Every year I still learn something about that accident that makes me even more grateful of how covered I was. You don't know what you don't know. And so I think that accident shows through everything. When I go to a, a restaurant, I look at the waiter. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. No, no. How are you? How's your shift going? Oh, it's been a long shift or it's challenging. What's your name? Oh, my name is such and such. I see people as human. And I think that is something that's so simple that I can do as a form of gratitude for still being alive is to see other people, you know, outside of the race, outside of their background, outside of their nationality, but just as a human, you don't know what's going on in someone's life. And to be able to see them and ask them how they're genuinely doing, that goes a long way. But I don't think I would have been that way if my life wasn't taken from me. So every day something comes up that reminds me I could not be here, but I am. And, and what advice would you give someone who may have also experienced a similar thing, who is like currently or in the, in the past experienced a similar kind of situation in terms of moving forward? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, near-death experiences are very traumatic and it takes years and years and years to process and to work through. Um, and the biggest advice that I would give is to go back and look at how it changed the person, whether it's good or bad, but to give that experience space to breathe and not to suppress it, not to push through it. I have to get better. I have to start walking, but just sit and, and recognize why do you think it happened? Why in that precise moment on that day and that year and that month? What do you think life or you know your higher power or the universe was trying to tell you or show you about yourself? So when I when, I, when we spoke before in the past, we spoke about your artwork and, and the pressures within your family, like going down a more of an artistic route, and how painting has helped you continue a creative process. So I wanted to find out a bit more about that and kind of when, when did you first start painting and then what did that mean for you at the time? Yeah, um, I started painting in high school um, and according to my art teacher, I drew like a kindergartner and she ver verbatim said I would never make it as an artist. And it was a general, I think like 2D class and it just really tore me up because I would spend hours on projects. So something that can take someone one hour would take me three hours to complete because I wanted to fully understand it. And so when she said that, I got a D in the class and I was an artsy person. And so I still drew, I still did little things, but I never took an art class outside of that in high school. I just kind of let it be known. OK, I'm not an, art an artist. I never used that label. Um, and then, you know, I was going to college to get a degree to become a, um, a pediatric doctor. 
and I was, you know, a bio major learning about neurology. I was capable of doing that. But then, you know, that thumping, that Jumanji thumping kept coming back about the art. I was like, well, what, what if I just explore? You know, I remember sitting in my bio class and just staring off and daydreaming. And I was like, you know, I could do this, but I want something more. You know, like, what if this isn't what I'm meant to do that won't satisfy me? So I made a bargain with God. I said, I'll take this 2D class in college again. And if I pass it with an A, I'll pursue arts as a degree. And if I don't, I'll stay in my bio major and I'll become a doctor. And my, I signed up for the class. My first project completely failed. It was so terrible. I started crying in front of the whole class because I, I did not follow the instructions, but I also did not have the background that majority of my class had. They were art majors. So they had already taken four years of art. They knew how to, you know, put something on the board. They knew how to set it up. They knew what type of material. I was just learning. And so my project had glitter and like hearts and color splattered and everyone else was black and white. And so mine's is standing out and I'm like, oh, but I had a great teacher that sat with me before and after class, taught me how to mix paint, taught me how to make colors, taught me how to take care of my art pieces. Um, and then that's where the journey began because of one person's patience to say, no, you are an artist. You just have to learn the fundamentals to make it your own. And then I, I realized in my mind, I always thought an artist was someone who can draw or who can paint or who can do, you know, like a portrait of someone or a landscape really well. And I wasn't familiar with abstract art. And so once I was able to feel comfortable in that field of like, oh, yeah, it's OK for me to throw paint around, you know, and it be called a painting. And so that's what led to my freedom of undoing a lot of the stigmas growing up, which is why I, I encourage other, you know, not just students and kids, but adults too. Now my mind of what my definition of what an artist is, is so expansive, which makes me such a different art therapist. A lot of art therapists wouldn't agree with me. For me, someone who's OCD and cleans, you're an artist. A gardener, you're an artist. You fix cars, you're an artist. You know, you organize things or, you know, you create things or you sculpt things, you're an artist. Anything that anyone can produce and create, I see everyone as an artist of some way. But it's about honing in on that gift and using it in a therapeutic way and processing and expressing. Oh, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think it's, important to embrace the creativity that you have and because I, I, in particular i think it kind of in the society we live in i feel like the creative arts is looked down upon because it's not it's not the norm it's like different and it's but yeah look at the, the way i see a lot of a lot of the media that surrounds us is is kind of built on creativity and built on creative students and people who are artists and yeah. create stuff Absolutely. And I think, I think it's important that we em embrace that and kind of like continue doing what we do um, because it's, it's enjoyable and it's a great experience and you can develop yourself as an individual over time. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the, 
kind of the pressures from your family towards you going down the kind of an artistic route? Um, kind of what was their responses on this? Yeah. Um, my parents, to say this in a non-formal way, my parents flipped. This wasn't the path that I was supposed to go down. It took them a while to gain understanding of what it was I was doing. They just knew I was down in Springfield. I was, you know, I left on a mission to become a doctor. And now I'm talking about being an artist. And at that moment, they were cutting a lot of the budget in Chicago for the art, the creative arts. And so, you know, I was like, oh, if I'm going to be an artist, maybe I can be an art teacher. And so when the budgets were getting cut, now my parents are panicking. They're like, she's going to graduate. She's not going to have a job. You know, we can't support her. We need her to be independent. And, you know, it was just very confusing and scary for them, especially for me being a first generation. Again, I was trailblazing in ways that they weren't familiar with. And so when I was, I transferred to Illinois State University and I was a sophomore and I realized that everything was getting cut and I, you know, maybe art, an art teacher wasn't the best route. I tried to do art administrative, you know, maybe I can work in a museum or maybe I can work in a gallery and maybe I can do this. But I was like, this doesn't feel like what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I remember going into my advisor's office, Angel Davis, underneath the TRIO program, which is for first generation students, just sobbing my eyes out. And I was like, Angel, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Like my parents are freaking out and I'm freaking out. And she like, I remember clear as day, she told me to catch my breath, gave me a mint, gave me a tissue. And she said, what do you like? And I was like, well, what do you mean? She asked me again, what do you like? And so in my tears and I'm sobbing, and I'm like, well, I like art and I like psychology and I like the brain and I just want to help people. And so she turns over in her chair, goes into Google and types in art and psychology. And that is where art therapy came up and the school, the Art Institute came up. And so once I got on that path, um, typically to be, to be admitted into the art therapy program at the Art Institute, you have to have a degree, an undergrad in art therapy, or have taken the fundamental workshops um, like you know, Art Therapy 101, 102, things like that. And I had neither. And so I created my own major because I don't take no as an answer. I knew this is what I want to do. I have to at least try so I was a major in studio arts um, painting and then a double minor in psychology and art history. And I crafted it together. I met all the requirements. You know, I volunteered. I started this club. I started that club. Um, and then I, I remember being at my interview at the Art Institute. And I said, in front of everyone, I remember grabbing the mic and we had to show one piece of artwork and describe how it therapeutic helped, helped us. And I said, I know I'm not qualified to be here, but I promise you that if you give me a chance, I'll be the best damn art therapist that comes out of your program. And everyone just got quiet. <laughs> and I passed the mic to the next person. I knew my competition was hundreds, over 300 applicants. They were only going to take 20. My teachers, my art teachers said, you should apply for backup schools. You should take a break. You should, you know, hone in on your craft. And I just had to mute everyone, my parents, my teachers, everyone and say, no, this is what I feel God is telling me to do. I'm not going to have a backup. 
I'm going to the Art Institute, I'm going to get admitted, and I'm going to walk across that stage. And that is exactly what happened. And how does being an artist contribute towards your like self-awareness and healing? Yeah, I, I think for me personally, being an artist allows me to sit with parts of myself, um, with my subconscious, and to have dialogue. How am I really feeling? What's going on? You know, being able to process, I think about things and I just create, you know, I splash paint. I'm the type of artist that I have so many creative ideas at once that I literally have to have seven canvases up at the same time. So I can go from one piece to another, one's drying. I got another idea. Oh, let me try this. Oh, let me do that. And so I have come up with my own color code where if I know blue is coming up, Oh, there's some sadness in me I'd like to explore. Red equals anger. Yellow equals my relationship with God. When colors mix, you know, purple and blue. For me, that means there's some trauma that I'm processing. And so for me, it's an honest and safe dialogue that I can have to be able to see how am I doing? Uh, Christina is also the host of I'm Not Your Therapist podcast, where she explores self-awareness, relationships and boundaries and cultural identity. So what led you to creating this podcast, this show, and, and why did you decide to come up with the title I'm Not Your Therapist? Yes, this is so interesting because once I graduated, I got my degrees in art therapy, dance therapy. I began a journey of um, finding blind spots and looking for parts of me that I'm not aware of, but asking friends and loved ones to like point that out. And it's very raw and very vulnerable and very challenging. Um, but I realized that a lot of my friends and my family members would be like, Christina, you always have your therapist hat on. And I remember when my sister-in-law told me, I literally stood there in shock. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, there's certain questions you ask or you go deep or you, you know, reframe things to get us to share. And I was like, oh, I thought I was just being like a good person by asking. Like, well, how does that make you feel? Or, you know, did you try to do this? And that because I realized I was doing that and other people also affirmed that. I needed to tell myself when someone comes to me with the problem, I am not their therapist. I do not have to solve it for them. I do not have to problem solve it or process it or go deeper with it. And I, I had a hat on that I didn't even know it was on. And so that podcast, that first season was me exploring, okay, if this hat is on, am I being my own therapist in ways too? And so it was me having dialogue, literally me processing certain topics out loud about my culture and school and my experiences and trauma to see if I can have distance between me and my therapist hat. Just talking about it, not solving it. So in the first episode that you released for I'm Not Your Therapist podcast, it was called The Forbidden Fruit. There was a section which I wanted to talk to you about, and it was about you being a Christian and also being bisexual. You, you know, you came out on, on the podcast to say you were bisexual, but I was interested about, you know, it was the balance between 
being religious and also being uh, bisexual. I'm just wondering if there was any like barriers surrounding that. Yeah, I think that identity that I now can um, sit with and and label myself as a chosen label. It needed to happen because I kept suppressing it and it kept coming up in different ways or different conversations. Um, And it was just so evident that it was there, but it was shame and guilt that I tried to keep it locked away. And it was because of my faith, you know, growing up in that strict mentality of you can't be Christian and be gay. You're one or the other. And I had always took a liking to the LGBTQIA plus community. I always had a heart for them. I always saw them and, and cared for them. And I, I never really understood why I always wanted to be a part of their community. Um, and so one of the, the biggest concerns I had was coming out to my family and also coming out publicly and how people would respond. You know, I was ready for arguments. I was ready for Bible verses. I was ready for you're going to hell. This doesn't work. You know, you're shameful. And to my surprise, everyone was open and receptive of it. Every single person. And my biggest thing that I wanted to say with having those two labels, Christian and bisexual, is that I know 100% that God is real for me. And that he sees me and loves me and accepts accepts me for who I am. And so for someone to say, I'm going to hell, I can't, I can't believe that. I don't believe that. I think that our life is a journey and there are things that you don't choose. I literally tried to pray this out of me. I've tried to get people to pray it out of me. I've tried doing, you know, a baptism to see if it will renew me. And it did not go away. And so I decided to face it and sit with it. I agree with you, like, I'm going to open up a bit here, but when I, I'm, I'm also bisexual, so when I came out to my parents, that's like the hardest thing ever, because you want, you want that approval, you want, you want that acceptance, and you don't want them to see you any differently, you know, the, right. um, I think especially when you have, you know, maybe like strict or like quite traditional parents, for them to hear that is quite, uh, it's quite a, a lot for them to take in. And, and a lot of the time when, when your parents have those kind of morals and stuff, they, they react, they tend to react badly. And I understand that for, for a long time, you, you kind of wanted that approval. You want, you just wanted to be open and be you. And our society is so like, there's so many rules and, and, and we can't just live our life and be people. So we have to like come out and, 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 be open about it and say, you know, I'm, I'm gay or I'm bi or whatever. But, you know, if our society wasn't so strict and these kind of rules and these kind of like stigmas around your sexuality wasn't engraved in our society, there wouldn't be like a, a huge buildup to like coming out and stuff. I just, th- I just think a lot of it is based on the pressures within society and it frustrates me that that's the thing. Um, I I agree with you. I do agree with you that I do think that it's a societal way of oppression to try to get people to expose themselves or to name themselves and to label themselves as opposed to just existing and just being. And so I first of all, I want to say thank you for you know sharing that piece with me and talking about it openly. And I agree with you about the parental part as well. Um, you know, I definitely thought that in particular, my mother, who was also a Christian, was just going to just be so upset 
just be so disappointed. And, you know, I had randomly just at a gas station, I had put the podcast out and talked to her. And she was like, oh, okay. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, what? Did you hear what I said? <laughs> she's like, yeah. And so my mom doesn't speak English well. She only speaks Spanish. So she's like, do you like boys more? Or do you like girls more? And I was like, well, I, I don't know right now, but I'm leaning towards, you know, liking men more. And she's like, okay, okay, okay. So can you make contract and give me, you know, grandbaby? And I was like, what? <laughs> she's like, basically, you know, my mom is 74. I'm 30. And she did not care. She just wants me to give her a grandchild. And I was like, this is not the reaction that I expected. And so that showed me that sometimes I may have preconceived notions of what can happen or how someone will respond, but we truly, truly never know until we just do it. I think and it's scary. Yeah, I, I think I think you know, I agree with you. You kind of like in your mind, you play how the situation would, would, would play out when you say this to them. And you think of all the negatives before even telling them. And then when you tell them, it's fine. And it's such a nice, it's like a sense of relief. It's so yeah. nice. to Because I, I just think uh, maybe if you had told that your mother like a few years back, her, her response may have been different because of the, just the times. I think, t- you know, the, the times are changing and people are adjusting to the new ways of living and stuff. And to think, yeah, I think, I think as time goes on, being open about your sexuality is becoming more accessible and more of a norm than it was before. That's just my take on it anyway. Yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with you that as more time progresses, it's starting to become more normalized. That people just have different identities and different preferences and just different choices. And in my mind, I always thought like, well, you can't be a professional and be this, or you can't look like that, or you can't present as this because you'll be a bad example. And I just had to let that go and realize that it's a lot more common than I think, a lot more common. And are there any particular resources that, that you think that would be helpful for other people, say books or documentaries, that kind of thing? You know, I would say that there is one book that I read. I didn't do a lot of research. It was mostly I relied on people. I relied on the community that I had around me directly to talk about the experiences because I could read it. And I think for some people, certain things is good to do research and read. But this one, I needed engagement. I need good girl, bad Christian or something like that. It was just an absurd type, you know, converts, you know gets married and all of a sudden she's not bisexual anymore. And so one thing I did not like about that book was that she did not talk about that process, you know, and she, I I don't believe that you can just undo it or switch it off. And so I realized after reading that book, I was like, "Eh, I'm too opinionated to read on this specific topic. So I'd rather talk to people. And so I would suggest as a resource is to find a community find a safe space to have dialogue, to have questions, to have conversation and to have insight. I think that's the best place to go to, to start and let them pour into you. And, and kind of what's next for you? What's, what's going to happen this year in 2021 for you? What, what, what kind of things are you planning to be doing? 
Yeah. Um, and so outside of Fontanelli Art and the team expanding, I eventually want to pull back from Fontanelli Art and allow it to run itself. Um, I am going to be launching on the 1st of July my independent life coaching company called Aligning Your Inner Self. I do this privately. It's actually how I paid my staff. It's as a service exchange. They work, um, you know, set hours a week and they get free coaching sessions. But now I'm going publicly with it. I believe that there's a lot of things that I have experienced and gone through and still yet to go through. Um, but with what I, the wisdom that I have, I want to pour and help someone else in their journey. Um, and so I'm really excited for that to launch. Um, you know, I'm going to be on a few podcasts and mostly traveling, traveling to do mental health consulting. A couple of schools have brought me on as their um, school year personal consultant to come in and start incorporating mental health in their everyday school curriculum. Um, and so I'm excited to start just changing systems, you know, one by one. And so, yeah, be on the lookout for new faces, for new content with coaching and just traveling as much as I can. Well, well, thank you so much, Christina. We, we've reached the end. Thank you. I've, I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. It's really good. And I hope you in, in, enjoyed this conversation and stuff and just, just chatting and getting to know each other a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for this space. Um, I, I do want to say thank you for just the mindfulness of your questions and how you've pulled certain things out. You know, a little bit that I mentioned before is sometimes when I do podcasts or interviews, it's always my therapy hat on. And I would say this is my first interview where I felt whole, that I wasn't wearing any hat, but I just showed up and shared me as a person. And so I thank you for this um, experience to be able to not have to separate all the different components. But I'm an artist and a dancer and an educator and a CEO. And I've been through trauma. And so thank you so much for cultivating this experience. And I hope that all your listeners will be able to gain something and they learn a little bit about themselves. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm glad that I've been able, I've helped you to kind of feel comfortable and open up about these you know, areas that you feel comfortable with and areas that you haven't really spoken about before. I just think it's important that we speak about these kind of issues and in some ways in terms of listeners, they, they can take something back from kind of your, your life and the things you've been doing. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.